The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. I think the one thing we can all agree on is that no one is happy right now with the way things are. But there's disagreement over how much change we can ask for right now. Like, can I start to advocate for free college and legalized pot when, like, gay marriage might be repealed? I just worry that this push-pull leaves me somewhere in the middle and settling for less, limiting my own dreams of what the future can be because I'm afraid about the present. I just feel like I'm not radical enough. A recent example. So right now, people are rising up to protest against police violence. And the phrase abolish the police or defund the police is really becoming an idea that is is much more mainstream. Sophie Yanow is an author and a cartoonist who's been involved in a lot of radical activist organizer circles. And so she posted something on Instagram about defunding the police. And then I saw somebody else post something on Instagram that was like, you have to say abolish the police. You can't say defund the police because if you say defund the police, people don't know that what you mean is that it's a step towards abolition. Sophie was like, wait, was what I posted not enough? Should I have said abolish instead? Then a friend of mine who's an older sort of activist was like, actually, I think the word defund is really important because it's it does represent a step and it represents a, an, an action that people can understand as a step towards abolition. And so there's this back and forth about what is the right wording to use. And it was kind of interesting for Sophie that she was dealing with this dilemma because she just wrote a whole graphic novel about this, about how to try to be a good person in a bad world. The book is called The Contradictions. One of the reasons I ended up deciding to like do the book is because I was sort of talking to friends of mine in the like anarchist scene we were talking about like when we first got introduced to like lefty ideas and how those ideas came through people and how those people had an influence on how we thought about the ideas. And like ideas can be perfect, but humans are fallible, right? The comic is autofiction. So the main character is named Sophie and it's based on Sophie's life, but it's not actually Sophie. The book starts in Paris with Sophie having just arrived to study abroad. Here I was, age 20. The character feels out of place and pretty quickly meets uh, somebody who maybe aligns more with her background. So she's exiting a bar and sees somebody riding by on a fixed gear bike. Whoa, fixed gear and makes the association that, okay, if they're riding a fixed gear, then maybe they're a punk, and if maybe they're a punk, then maybe they're queer, and like, then maybe I have a friend here. Hey, nice bike. Hey, I saw you at orientation. This person on the bike turns out to be another American in Sophie's study abroad program, and they strike up a friendship. This person, Zena, is not as queer as Sophie hoped, but she is a punk. Zena is vegan. She is very active in, like, animal rights stuff and very vocal about it. The guy I just broke up with worked at the co-op with me, and we used to sit outside and yell things like, milk is full of pus. I used to be vegetarian, but I'm anemic, so I stopped. You could take iron pills or eat spinach. 
character Sophie explains that she's tangentially associated with some anarchist or lefty friends back home. And, you know, she's dipping her toes in, into that world, but hasn't really participated much. And then Xena, on the other hand, you know, she talks about having a planner full of activist activities. And then she also gives Sophie a book about these two anarchists hitchhiking around Western Europe. Everyone's making plans for spring break. What if we went hitchhiking? Taking a plane, the gas emissions are out of control and also going hitchhiking is is more living the ideals. I think I'll go vegan for the trip, like in solidarity. You don't have to do that. No, but I want to. Zena and Sophie hit the road, trying to thumb their way from Paris to Amsterdam. Is this a freeway entrance? Um, Excusez-moi. It's actually exhausting, and it takes forever. So when they get to Amsterdam, Sophie kind of, like, pulls out the map and is like, Well, we could go to the Anne Frank house. Hmm. I don't know. Or, like, the Van Gogh Museum. Nah. Zena just does not seem interested. Museums only show the narrative of the victor and... They are a hierarchical thing that must be abolished or whatever. There's a comic shop I'd like to see. Maybe we can walk there. Sure. Well, they end up wandering around a fair bit. <laughs> it's sort of the the deflation of like, we, we did the thing and we're here and now now we're just here. Do you want to get some food? Sure. So the veganism, when they're in between Ghent and Berlin, is when it really kind of comes to a head where Sophie is just, like, incapable of functioning. I need to eat something. There's a scene at one of the truck stops where Sophie goes in and is trying to figure out if, you know, if the soup they have is vegan or if this or that is vegan. And the person there is just like, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. Like, I cannot help you. So she ends up just eating nuts. God, I'm fucking hungry. This sucks. At the end of the story, the characters end up missing their flight back to Paris because despite everything, they were going to take a plane back to Paris. They end up missing it, taking an overnight train where they you know, sleep poorly, saying goodbye to each other. Well, that was fun. Yeah. See you. See you at school. They part ways and Sophie takes the metro back to, to her place. She's starving because she's been on a overnight train, hasn't eaten for hours and hours, and she goes into McDonald's <laughs> and orders a burger. That last scene, that really happened to real person Sophie. When I was in France and I was trying to be vegetarian, I did have a moment where I went to a McDonald's and I ate a burger and I was so ashamed. Like, I didn't tell anybody about that for years. <laughs> and there was a point where I was like, oh, like, that's that's funny. That's a funny moment. It's an absurd moment. And like learning how to have compassion for like my younger self, now I can look at it and say, like, it's okay, dude. It's fine. (laughs) I don't know. 
It's hard to get to that place. I have a very hard time telling myself it's fine. Like, I feel terribly guilty when I order a drink and it comes with a plastic straw. There's this ongoing internal battle between my Sophie side and my Zena side. My pragmatic Sophie side who compromises to accommodate the world around her. And an internal Zena who holds fast and rigid to her ideals. So what can you do with the reality that we live in? And I think that that is an, a, a place that the left is sort of starting to to figure out. Well, for so long, so much of what the left has asked for has been characterized as an impossibility. And to want these things, no matter how important, no matter how existential to people's lives, was to be characterized as living in a fantasy land. Brianna Joy Gray is the former national press secretary for Bernie Sanders. I think about the, the arguments that I have online, and it's very rarely with someone who's, you know, a right-winger or a Trump person. The folks that I have the most contentious battles with are folks that I feel like should be ideologically aligned, people who say they care about the same things, who purport to support, you know, Medicare for all, to understand the need of, for a Green New Deal, but who counter and say, you know, I just don't think it's possible. I don't think it's realistic. You can't vote for your heart. You can't vote for the socialist. You can't vote for maybe AOC because it's it's just too risky a proposition. And how many generations have to suffer under the status quo? And the left, because we do share these values and we don't want the world to get worse, is always willing to blink first in this game of chicken. We're always willing to put on the brakes before the other team who is willing to crash the whole thing in order to get what they want. I guess this gets down to, like, isn't compromise one of the core tenets of representative democracy? Like, no one's going to get what they want all the time, right? And yet it seems like certain constituencies do get what they want all the time. And I don't, I think this is the moment where we have to stop thinking about politics in terms of good guys and bad guys and think about it in terms of the power dynamics at play. And the reality is that certain constituency groups, conservative constituencies, moderate constituencies get what they want, not because they're better advocates for themselves, but because their interests align with the donors that keep people on both sides of the aisle in power. And this is where it all just starts to feel hopeless. Like these wider economic systems are just so broken at the core that attempting political change feels like trying to add a bedroom to a house with a rotten foundation. And then meanwhile, there's this chorus of people, more radical than me, who are like, well, we need to tear this house down and build a new house. But in the meantime, we actually need at least three more bedrooms and a new stove. And I feel like there's such pressure on the left to get so woke so quickly to kind of wade in slowly or moderately entertaining more lefty ideas is still not enough now. To people who are, you know, struggling to come around to issues, I, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. The first time I heard abolish the police, I thought, hmm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a comms person. I assessed the kind of communications strategy aspect of it and whether or not it was going to be alienating. You know, I'm not an organizer and it's not my job to tell organizers what to do. And I think that largely they're right in taking strong positions and understanding that it's going to be a process for the culture to come on board. And in the meantime, as this process plays out, it's a lot of compromise. The thing is about compromise is that no one ends up happy. And I think that's true. After the break, how one teenager transformed from a Xena to a Sophie back into a Xena. 
and saw the other side of compromise. Renee Otero is a natural diplomat and a master at seeing both sides of a situation. He was on the debate team in high school and actually one of the best debaters in all of Texas. And so one day, Renee's debate coach informed him that he had been automatically accepted into a program called Boys State. I was like, okay, cool. What is that? And she's like, it's an honor. I was like, cool. What is that? She's like, it's an honor. Not once did I ever get a chance to slow down and really understand um, what Boys State was. Because, you know, I'm 17. Um, you know what 17-year-old boys do? Not their research. So I didn't do my research. I went and I just went in there, uh, you know, expecting nothing. That made everything a pleasant little surprise. I'm a right-wing libertarian. I'm a big-time capitalist. My uncle is the youngest Republican senator in history. My other uncle served as the associate to Poland. I scored a 35 on the ACT, putting me in the 0.2 percentile. Boys State and its twin program, Girls State, are sponsored by the American Legion, a nonprofit run by U.S. war veterans. Boys State is an exercise in democracy, kind of like model Congress or student government, except it lasts an entire week and it's statewide and super prestigious. Every state does this, and so many famous public figures went through the program, including Lou Dobbs, Tim Cook, Neil Armstrong, Roger Ailes, and actually Bruce Springsteen, but that's neither here nor there. The year Renee participated in Texas Boys State, it was filmed for a documentary called Boys State. Renee was one of the main characters the film followed. We have 24 cities here at Boys State. Those cities filter into counties, and that's very much like real life. So over a thousand high school boys come together from across their state to form two fictitious political parties called the Federalists and the Nationalists. The boys then decide their party's platforms, pass laws, and at the end of the week, they elect a governor. Somebody will run your city. Somebody will run your party. Sitting beside you or someone sitting in your seat may be the next governor of Texas Boys State. By and large, there's a certain type of boy who is attracted to Texas Boys State. And I've never seen so many white people ever. And Renee felt like a fish out of water. I was in line um, waiting to get my picture taken. And my mom was like, there's a lot of white people. And I was like, yes, yes, Bridget, I, this I see. And she was like, it looks very conservative. And I was like, yes, I also feel this. And I was like, you're making this so much easier for me. And she was like, um, do you want to go home? And I was like... Yeah, but I couldn't say that because now people are looking at me. I'm not going to be like, yes, I want to go home with my mommy right now. So like, um, so I was like, okay, dope, I'll do it. In addition to being one of a handful of Black people at Boy State, Renee was one of the very few liberals. But Renee, as you know, is a champion debater. He was like, maybe I can learn from this. I thought it was really important for me to learn the conservative sides of things because it forces you to think. At first I was like, this is a conservative indoctrination camp. And I was like, ah, no, this is literally what every liberal needs. Seeing the other side wasn't just a thought exercise for Renee. It was also a survival tool. He already stuck out as a black queer lefty. To succeed at Boys State, to play the political game, to win elections, Renee realized he was going to have to cool it down. And I planned on having two options, either shut up, don't speak, or find some way to conform and survive. So Renee started with plan A. Day one, he was very quiet and didn't say much. 
but shutting up and not speaking doesn't really do you any favors in politics. The first couple days in Boys State, there are all these elections for various positions happening all the time, and Renee was just striking out. Day two rolls around. I'm losing elections left and right, and so I just kept losing, and then I got to the state party chair election. The candidates for party chair sounded like this. Do you want a chairman who will act for each and every one of your personal desires? Our masculinity shall not be infringed. I'm going to use this devotion to pressure the Federalists into a state of absolute submission. The two fictional parties didn't have platforms or policies yet, but they already had the rhetoric. These party chair candidates were already talking about pummeling the opposition or strong-arming them, and that just didn't sound right to Renee. He decided that he would shift to plan B. He decided to run for state party chair. And I was revising and editing, writing my speech literally in the audience. And this is what he said. My grandmother told me a few things. You have to have faith, hope, and a bit of a pissed off attitude. I want to be civil and represent a whole working body. And we're going to take the example of a plain body. It has two wings, a left one and a right one. We're not going to pick one. We're going to stay in the middle because we are not an intolerable party. We're one that is palatable to all. And so as long as we're able to keep this plane afloat with a healthy right wing and a healthy left wing, we have the ability and the capability to pummel any Federalist into the ground because we are the only party that's worth voting for because it's this party that's going to represent every individual. Vote for me for your state chair. Renee won the position of party chair. So your state party chairman is? Renee. Renee ran on the very platform of compromise. I feel like everybody has a secret underlying need for bipartisanship. So I think just running out a campaign of bipartisanship and being as inspecific as possible was a great way for me, I guess, to integrate myself. I wanted to win something after losing so much the entire day. And um, motivated by the fact that I wanted to, like, school these kids. um, But also, I had to walk a very fine line if I even wanted to win. You know, Blackness makes my politics seem ambiguous, right, to everyone, apparently. right? You know, everyone's watching me twice as hard. Renee turns out to be an incredibly adept chairman as he presides over a room of 550 tired and hormonal teenagers who are trying to figure out what their party stands for. I motion to secede and legally call this boys' nation. We can't secede. (laughs) The boys are all throwing around far-fetched ideas and pushing limits and bending rules, and Renee is keeping the peace. Can we get decorum? Decorum? Thank you. So my city would like impeachment and revote for the state chairman. In maintaining bipartisanship and trying to appeal to consensus... Renee gets attacked by his own party. There's this whole campaign to try to get him impeached. They want to impeach me? It's just a little different for somebody that looks like me. So I guess my way of doing it is just going to be palatable and congenial to what the body wants. I'm going to vote for everything, and then that's what I'm going to adopt. And those that didn't vote for that side, they're going to be mad. They're going to call for an impeachment. They're going to be on their one side, and the other side is going to be mad. And then what do we have? A divided party. 
When the opposition party hears about Renee's impeachment, they take advantage of the internal discord and they weaponize a meme Instagram account called Impeach Renee. And the account starts to post these really offensive racist memes. Just going to Boy State and dealing with like the stuff, the petty racism, right? Like I was already prepared to deal with that, deal with it all the time. Just wasn't, I just didn't realize how much of a challenge it would be for seven days straight. Um, and I was like, if this is supposed to be a political space, if these children have literally no political experience except for what they see on TV and they're reflecting these like same actions, like eloquently, like I was, your racism is top notch, okay? I am a little concerned. I'm not going to give away the entire plot of Boys State. It's really fascinating and you should watch it. But basically the whole mission of Boys State is to encourage kids to get into electoral politics. And with Renee, it backfired. You're right. I did want to go into Boys State, you know, wanting to be a senator. Um, after that experience, I was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. My ideas of compromise were certainly not something that I would have said under different circumstances. You know, had it had not been 550 white conservative faces in front of me, but I refused to completely abandon any of my politics. And so me arguing for bipartisanship was a compromise that I made. If you could do Boy State again now, if you could make that initial speech that finally got you elected now, what would you do differently? I think about this a lot. Uh, you know, I was really upset with my Boy State uh, initially. Now I'm like really grateful for the whole experience, just thinking back. But I left feeling really jaded. If I were to give that speech again, I don't know, during, like if I went back now, I'd probably still go with my bipartisanship message because electability um, and unity is really what's most important to me at this time. You th so you don't think unity, unity and compromise are not in the same boat for you? I don't think so. I mean, imagine, you know, if you were seeing people that look like you on the news every night, you know, being executed by police, and you're and someone asks you, but what if we kill less? I don't think people understand that compromise shouldn't be a life or death situation, and that's what we're playing with now. Unity and compromise are not mutually exclusive, but they're not mutually inclusive either. We should not be compromising for the protection of our communities off the basis of literally our blackness, our skin color. We do not need to be making these compromises, yet we do. Yet we do. There's so much virtue with compromising, with giving up with you believe in for the sake of somebody else that we like virtue signal it so much that we think we're doing great by placating and being placated. But like, what can we do? How can we stand up for ideals in a, in a moderate world where compromise is preached to us as a virtue? You stop compromising. How? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, me and my friend, have batching rubber bullet wounds above our knees. Because we were during in Austin during um, the surge on I-35 and then planned the very next day where we were going to demonstrate next and how we were going to organize. Like voting is you compromising. 
oh, I'm going to cast my vote for what I think the country should look like. And I have a 50 percent chance of that happening. Right. We need to change the way that we view civic engagement from being a systematic form of engagement, you know, utilizing politics like voting and calling your senator to being asystematic, like, you know, being in the streets, protesting, organizing. Are you I mean, you're still going to vote, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, Because I'm not going to change the world by November 3rd, baby. What I'm saying is how do we get rid of the of of the economic system that quite literally forms the basis of this country? You don't vote it out. You don't call the senator about it. So I want to engage within politics and through activism, you know, education, nonprofit work, because electoral politics require me to compromise, to de-radicalize and declaw. The only way for us to live outside of this system is to learn how. And how do we learn how? From those who have lived outside of the system, the most illegal bodies. Black queer women have always been the foundation of literature, of of liberation, um, you know, movement. So I think what we need to do is listen to them. But we listen to those who have the most experience outside of the system, the most uh, capability to imagine. Like Angela Davis is alive, friends. And this is what Angela Davis said. I don't see this election as being about choosing a candidate who who will be able to lead us in the right direction. It will be about choosing a candidate who can be most effectively pressured into allowing more space for the evolving anti-racist movement. Biden is very problematic in many ways, but Biden is far more likely to take mass demands seriously, far more likely than the current occupant of the White House. So that This coming November, the election will ask us uh, not so much to vote for the best candidate, but to vote for or against ourselves. And to vote for ourselves, I think, means that we will have to campaign for and vote for Biden. Biden is a better opponent to have in the White House than Trump. And that's how I look at it. Sophie Yano, the cartoonist again. I know that if I, you know, when I vote, I am participating in really a failure of an institution, but I'm not going to just not do it. This gets back to what Sophie said way at the beginning about why she wrote her comic. Why eat vegan in a carnivorous society? Why vote within a rigid two-party system that's rife with problems? It's what Sophie was talking about. How ideas can be perfect, but people are fallible. So much so that doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing, feels wrong. Feels like not enough. Especially as ideas become more and more perfect and more and more divorced from the real world. I remember reading something by Fred Moten. Uh, He said that as we get closer to liberation, our ideas of what we want will change because we'll have more access to different forms of thinking. And it makes that fissure between the pragmatic and the idealistic, the current world and the best world, a gaping hole, which is painful. 
But crossing that divide is the work. And our task is to reckon with both those sides, the Sophie and the Zena, and hold them both, and not lose track of one in the name of the other. In other words, not to compromise them. Our lead producer is B.A. Parker, edited by Allison Berenger, mixed and scored by Brandon McFarland, who also wrote our theme music. Character Sophie was played by Morgan Dewey. Zena was played by Gemma Rose Brown. Sophie Yano's book, The Contradictions, is out now from Drawn and Quarterly. Special thanks to Karinza Kadinas, Sangeeta Sankertz, and Zachary Mack. Stella Bugby and Nishat Kurwa are the executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman. Go vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.